On this episode, Kirk steals a boatload of children, the Superman beg to hear some Genesis, Chekhov won't listen since Mr. Rourke put a bug in his ear, and Jim gains a son while losing a Vulcan. It's Star Trek II, the best of the best. I'm Captain Awesome. I'm the Triple Hippie. Welcome aboard. Find something to hold on to, because there are no seatbelts on this bridge. Today we're talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, uh, released June 4th, 1982. Uh, incidentally, we just passed the 40th anniversary not too long ago. Um, I saw this actually in Anchorage, Alaska. Um, I was out of town or I was uh, traveling with my mom and dad. And this is actually probably might be the single best movie theater experience I've ever had in my life. The crowd was very much into it. The movie had only been out for about a week. Um every point you wanted somebody to cheer people cheered. It was actually just a very, very fun movie experience. And honestly it was surprising because I really had pretty low expectations for this movie after the last one. Yeah, that's fair. When did you see it? When I was a kid, we didn't have a whole lot of money. So we saw a lot of movies at the dollar theater. Um, thankfully the, the mall by our house had a dollar theater. So we'd, we'd go see a lot of stuff well after it came out. Um, so I went and saw this with my dad um, at the Dollar Theater, as usual. I'm pretty sure I'm permanently scarred. Uh, I I cannot tell you how many times I have had nightmares about things that happened in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will tell you, I I almost fast forwarded through uh, the, uh, the the scene with the earwigs. <laughs> This movie uh, so, actually might be the movie I have seen more than any one film in my entire life. I think this one actually barks the most wow. times. Uh, my dad actually taped it off of HBO um, back very early in video cassette days. And I watched this thing over and over and over. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> So the basic uh, concept of this movie, uh, concept, uh, uh. Yeah, yeah. so basically we're seeing uh, uh, Kurt grow older and as he faces uh, his own, uh, his own aging, uh, the evil villain from the past raises his ugly head and uh, basically tries to revenge himself upon uh, James T. Kirk and, uh, it's actually uh, somewhat of a reaction to the first movie because the producer Harv Bennett believed one of the biggest problems with Star Trek the motion picture was there was no real definable villain, um, which is something Roddenberry was really going for, but the audience really did not. And so he went through and watched, uh, binge watched the entire series and said, yeah, that's, that's the guy right there. Khan is the guy that, that Kirk needs to go up against. So, Kirk goes up against Khan. They have an epic battle and they come out the other end with Kirk being the winner. I mean, it doesn't get too much more complicated than that. It's, <laughs> you know, he, he's going to fight a bad guy. Um, this does set us up for the next movie. Um, for those who don't know, somebody very dear to us is going to die at the end of this one. <laughs> That's right. I'm talking about Kirk's son. We all love him. We, oh wait, no, we don't care about him. <laughs> Um, 
so as you said, this is based on the Space Seed episode. So that's uh, from the the original series, Space Seed. They are uh, traveling through the the black of space, and they come across a, uh, a, a probe that inside they find a whole bunch of people all frozen. And when they unfreeze them, they find that they are in fact genetically modified supermen who used to rule the world, including Ricardo Montalban. <laughs> and and the the whole thing is all this happened in the uh, 1990s, and we had no idea. Yeah, that's how effective he was. 1996. I, I was graduating <laughs> high school. I had no idea that Ricardo Montalban was actually the leader of the free world. I was I so wrapped free up world. in my, I was, I was <laughs> just so wrapped up in my own BS at the time, you know, who, who, who could notice that, right? you know, supermen are taking over the world. So, um, uh, interestingly enough, uh, you, you mentioned that Harv Bennett kind of the way that he came across all this stuff. Um, what I do find interesting is that the reason he was brought on to do this movie is because of the fact that he said he could do it on a low budget. Yes. And coming from uh, uh, the $6 million man, he had proven many, many times, yeah, we can do this on a real low budget. <laughs> um, for anybody who's actually seen that show, you can tell there's a lot of scenes of a guy running and that's about it. <laughs> well, uh, one uh, account that I read said that there were a number of questions from the different producers about uh, what kind of movie would you make? Blah, 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 blah. And it ended with uh blue horn just saying, can you make it for less than $45 million? And Harv Bennett basically told him, well, I can make five movies for $45 million. <laughs> so yeah, I think we'll be okay with that. And this came out at, at 11 million, um, just under 12 million. And you imagine, I mean, for the time, even that wasn't a great deal of money considering that the first movie had cost something around just over 40 mil. Um, I think it was 47 actually. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. It was really expensive. Now that said though, this movie shows that it's cheap, right? Oh, I mean, yes. it's, you can tell absolutely like there's, I mean, a lot of the filming of this movie actually looks very similar to the old series. Um, I, I will say, Harv definitely tapped into the, the, the look and feel of filming the TV show. Yes. Everything had, you know, it was all framed very much like a TV show. The lighting was very much like that. It, it was just, it, it was pretty obvious with where, uh, or how much money they had to deal with here. So I, I think it, but I still think it worked really well. Oh yeah. And, and I thought it was amazing that they actually pulled off a look that was completely different from the first movie while still utilizing a lot of the material from the first movie. Um, in mm -hmm. fact, that was a sticking point with Roddenberry as he thought that Meyer and, and to be clear, the designs for this movie are going to set the tone for the Star Trek franchise movie franchise all the way until movie six. I mean, we're going to see these same uniforms. We're going to see the same design of the ship. We're going to see uh, similar interiors, all of this going all the way through uh, Gene Roddenberry, who was a Navy man, ironically thought that they were over militarizing the look of Starfleet that Roddenberry's dream had always been that this is a organization of exploration, diplomacy, and scientific discovery and military would be very down at the last. Um, Nicholas Meyer really wanted to have a much more nautical theme to it. The bosun's whistle that comes in, um, the uniforms, uh, one of the key uh, uh, 
key points is because he describes it as a Horatio Homeblower in space. One of the key scenes hmm. is when they load the torpedoes, when they get ready for battle and they load the torpedoes and oh. everyone's scrambling around. And that's an obvious, uh, you know, getting the guns ready for your old wooden chip type thing. Oh, um, yeah. They they really, they hammer home the whole torpedo thing several yeah. times. And it, it's real problematic, but I get where he was going <laughs> with it. Um, and, I mean, the, the whole anti-military thing is going to come back several times. I mean, uh, it was a constant fight throughout making all of these movies that you would get writers and directors who were like, you know, this is a military expedition. And Gene would come back and say, no, 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 no. Military is not what this is about. Yes. And I get where he was coming from, but I think it's, it's a balancing act, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you've got people going out in uniforms and ships that are all part of a giant organization. (laughs) Uh, It's a military. (laughs) They're also all loaded for bear too. And I'm, I'm going to throw out just a, a fan theory here. Um, the militarization that we see, I'm going to, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that, um, Captain Reed, the second captain of the NXO one enterprise, mm-hmm. um, was from a Naval family and had a very military attitude. And I'm going to, I'm going to put some of this on him. I'm going to say that, that, uh, Captain Reed of the NXO one might've set a tone for Starfleet, uh, which was that I, right around the time that he implemented the read alert. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the Enterprise Bridge uh, was actually reused in this um, for or from the motion picture. Uh, they redressed it and they turned it into the simulator that we're going to open the the movie with. Um, you, you can tell. I mean, if you look at it, you can see that it looks exactly like the the motion picture. Right down to when the turbo lift opens, there's a diagram of the Enterprise inside of there. <laughs> now, and this is not a holodeck. This is a practical simulator yeah because they don't have holodecks yet they, they don't exist <laughs> so yeah so every, everybody's in a room so how, let's, how, is, let's, how is paramount not done this in real life how much money would you pay to take the kobayashi maru, maru scenario oh, hell yeah are you kidding me yeah, i would I, wait in line four or five hours at a time at, at universal studios just for the chance to or not universal studios yeah universal studios just for the chance. Uh, yeah. Guys, somebody needs to get on this. The, the, I right? think, I think there's just money waiting to be had there. Slap a, slap a one size fits all uniform on me. You know, I, I want my picture taken while I'm sitting in the chair. Hell yeah. Oh, heck yeah. All right. So the Kobayashi Maru, that that's, that's how we're going to open this movie. <laughs> which, this is which is basically oh crap we're fighting the opening scene from the la- from the very first movie right <laughs> so we uh we zoom in on the the bridge of some random ship and it's being captained by none other than rebecca from cheers <laughs> uh <laughs> kirstie alley uh so she is obviously a lot younger in this one um she is uh the vulcan captain in the seat, uh, by the name of, uh, Lieutenant Savick and Savick is going to try to escape from this situation. And just Um, a point, we don't know that she's not the captain because at this point we haven't seen these uniforms before. mm -hmm. So if we'd go forward and we were to see this movie after seeing the uniforms, I go, wait a second, why is a cadet 
because she's wearing the red turtleneck why is the cadet and the captain but we haven't seen those as of yet so we think what's going on here she looks like the captain yeah and for some reason kirstie alley is the captain of the entire enterprise crew (laughs) or at least the bridge crew so they get in this this horrendous battle with uh with klingons Uh, well there's a problem at a a mining colony that they need to go take care of but there's also uh, a, a problem with these Klingon bird of prey that are going to meet her up or meet up with her if they go outside the neutral zone, <laughs> which is exactly what she decides to do. And of course, <laughs> they start taking fire. We are no everybody dies. So this scene, th- this scene, I, I, in my imagination, the Russo brothers of uh, uh, Community and uh, Captain America and Avengers fame, those directors. Mm-hmm. This is one of the first times they're famous for their sleight of hand when it comes to advertising this movie. I'm pretty sure they, they took this from this movie because the rumor got out that Spock was going to die in this film and the immediate fan reaction was very negative. Mm -hmm. And the studio was very, very afraid that was going to sink the movie. So what they did is the scene, the Kobayashi Maru scene, Spock dies in that scene. Of course he's acting. But that particular shot of him dying would be what they use in the promotionals so that when people come to see the movie, they go, they see Spock dies like there it is. Spock dies. Then he jumps back up. there. Oh, it was all a feint. So I read an interesting article about that today, actually. Uh, Apparently the it's one of those secrets that all the actors know which is that uh, Roddenberry himself leaked that because he wanted to tank this movie. Wow. Uh, He was apparently very unhappy with um, the directing choice. He was unhappy with some of his dealings with the uh, studio and he was unhappy with how little he was going to be involved. Yes. So he is thought of as the one who actually leaked the Spock death scene script and and leaked it to the media and then uh the studio had to kind of backpedal so that so that he didn't get his way and tank the movie wow yeah uh from what i understand he wasn't really a very nice man (laughs) (laughs) he had some definite ideas that he just could not let go he was not an overly collaborative person like i i think that's true the the thing and and love the guy i saw him uh, uh speak when i was a teenager at a local university and and was fascinated by a lot of things that were going on in his brain but yeah and, and to be fair i've never been involved in the movie business so i can't yeah. be too judgmental but yeah there is just a lot of <laughs> he really caused a lot of pain to himself oh, and yeah. others um so yeah i I, I really kind of wondered watching this, why they didn't have a holodeck. I mean, that seems like it would have been a really obvious choice here. Um, even in the seventies, <laughs> like, why would we rebuild this set over and over again? Cause they destroyed the thing. Everything Can't... blew up all crazy. I, I was a real big fan of at one point bones just like leaped over uh, <laughs> the, uh, the railing to, to go see if somebody was okay. I think it was when Spock went down he jumps over and like checks him and he's like, Oh, he's dead. And I'm thinking to myself, bones knows this is a simulation. He, he knows that they're just acting and he's in his sixties. Why is he jumping over railings? <laughs> <laughs> like I, I'd be like, Hey, 
that guy over there is dead. <laughs> <laughs> you lost another one. Right? <laughs> but then, like of course, flies. he has to die, too. And then Chekhov dies. And then uh, Uhura dies. Like, everybody dies. So the Kobayashi Maru really was designed to kill everyone on the Enterprise Bridge. Um, so interestingly enough, uh, there, there is some cool, uh, graphics in this scene. Uh, I think you found out who the, the designers of those graphics were, cause these are computer generated graphics that were yeah. on the screens in there. Yeah. This was really interesting. Cause I didn't know this. The, the tactical displays and displays on this were, uh, actually, uh, um, designed by John Warnock. Now John Warnock would actually go on, uh, later to co-found a little software company called Adobe. So we're kind nice. of seeing the very early groundwork of this. And, and honestly, for the time we were seeing some things we really had not seen, um, the, the writing, the tactical displays. Um, in fact, in the tactical display, when Lieutenant Savick decides to go into the neutral zone and there's a wireframe representation of the neutral zone, uh, one source says that's actually a wireframe of a, a, of a photon torpedo that they just basically didn't put a skin on and put it in there because, that was cheap and easy. And considering what computers were like in 1981. Yeah. I, I can see their point. Oh yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> I, I'd copy and paste as much as possible. <laughs> no, no, no. This enterprise model, it, if you turn it upside down, it's uh, a tea kettle. That's yeah, great. <laughs> so Kirk gets done. Nanny, nanny, boo-booing the fact that she lost the, uh, that uh, Savick did not do well in the Kobayashi Maru. And then he explains to her, hey, cheer up, kid, because uh, nobody wins this. You're not allowed to. It's the whole point of the Kobayashi Maru is it's a no-win situation. And talk uh, about talk about your no-spoilers no test for people in, uh, in the academy. Because everyone's taking this right? thing and everyone goes in fresh not knowing what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. That's, well, that's... Maybe that's like, like rush day, right? Like... All right, you're you're fresh on campus. You just put all your stuff away. Everybody's like, "Oh, hey, it's nice to see you." Hey, do you know what class you're going to get in? Oh, wait, you're going to be late for your Kobayashi Maru. You better get over there. And then they <laughs> no, show up. I, they're like, "Yeah, I can do this." I don't know a lot about the uh, the academy, but I was curious about one thing. How is Savik a lieutenant and not an ensign? If she's still a cadet, it's uh, a good question. Actually, I don't know. Field promotion? I, I, I'm saying I'm not saying that it would be possible. I don't know anything about our current naval system, but I don't know. I can't think anywhere in Star Trek at any point that we've seen a cadet who's actually been a lieutenant. Okay, there is somebody who breaks the mold of all Ooh. cadet crap, and that's our good buddy who Wesley we hate with a passion, Wesley Crusher. Okay, <laughs> I hate with a passion. I don't know how you feel. About it. <laughs> The, the acting ensign thing is basically just Captain Picard being away from Starfleet and going, uh, I don't know. We'll just make something up for him. Right. Do something for the kid. Is there any way we can get Wesley to shut up? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Acting ensign. <laughs> Little did he know that would just make it worse. Kirk says, your, your crew destroyed the bridge and you with it. And Spock says, the Kobayashi Maru often wreaks havoc with equipment your solution was shall we say unique it had mm. the it had the was it it had the virtue of never being tried um after this scene we go to kirk's apartment oh, the bachelor that's right. pad the bachelor pad he has gaming chairs in the back 
In fact, his chairs, the chairs he has in the back look really close to the chairs for the Enterprise, the bridge of the Enterprise D. They look very uh, similar without the difference being that they don't have the little slit in the back. Yeah. But well, otherwise, I think the, they look I, I think the close. set designers of the D, that's what they did is they, they went in and cut holes in everything to be like, <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's futuristic. <laughs> See, you, you don't need as much material. Uncomfortable all those chairs had to be like they <laughs> they removed the spinal support from everything. Anyway, you, you know about the material, right? Uh-uh. The, uh uh In season one, the material mm-hmm. was uh, smooth vinyl, and they had to change it to a uh, uh, like a brush. Uh, it was like uh, that pink fabric because uh, on Star Trek: Next Generation, a lot of times when Patrick Stewart would get up out of the chair, it was sounded like he was passing gas. That's fantastic. And so they had to change the chairs because Stuart was not happy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit it out. I don't care. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we we make it to Kirk's house and uh, we're, we're, we get to see how Kirk lives and it's... <laughs> It's very bachelor patty. Um, there, there's not a, there's not mirrors all over the place. At least not in the, the living room. But there's not a dining table either, right? And he doesn't have a TV. Why don't people in the future watch TV? TV's awesome. Anyway, how would we even know about all this stuff if we weren't watching it on TV? This is why Tom Paris was the most intelligent person <laughs> in any Star Trek because he was like, I can make a TV. Anyway, I I did think they had one missed opportunity in this particular scene when uh, Dr. McCoy hands Jim the Romulan ale and Jim takes a sip and you see the look on his face that he hasn't had it in quite a while. I really thought they should have had DeForest Kelly just down his really quick, just up and right. It's <laughs> like, it's not Romulan ale. Come on. <laughs> no, he, he totally should have because. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Um, DeForest Kelly is drunk all the time in these movies <laughs> or bones is, I'm not sure which, what, what, what is it with Jim, Jim's fascination with let's hang dangerous stuff on the wall. Him and him and McCoy both. When we go back to space seed, oh. McCoy's got all these old scalpels and knives just hanging in a picture frame on the wall. We get to Jim's house. He's got old flintlocks and guns just laying around, which, I'm going to guess now I'm just going to throw this out here. I'm going to guess he developed an affinity for old guns after he learned how to mix gunpowder on the uh, Gorn fighting the Gorn. I'm just saying. Was it, it, was it there or was it when he had to defend the American flag in uh, uh, Omega <laughs> glory or, or, or was it when they went to a Western planet <laughs> or was it when they were fighting the Napoleonic war? <laughs> So I actually listened to a mathematician talk about the Omega glory Mm -hmm. and he said, here's the problem with a, an infinite universe. The problem with the infinite universe is that the odds of something like that happening while they may be to us astronomical are not close to infinity. And if you have an infinite universe, that's going to happen because he even throws out, there's a version of you like, there's all sorts of versions of you doing all sorts of weird things because infinity, the odds against it are, will never reach infinity. And if we have an infinite universe, that stuff is out there. You don't need alternate universes to have an evil, an evil uh, you. 
the evil you is in the same universe as you are right now. Uh, so they are drinking Romulan ale. Bones is totally instigating and calling Kirk old. Yeah, are you drinking your old man pills? I don't take those. They make me feel crappy. Okay. <laughs> well, what I love is McCoy can't even land in one place because in the last movie, in, in the motion picture, he's telling Jim, you have an obsession with the Enterprise and you need to do something about it. You, <laughs> you've got a problem, Jim. And then he comes over on his 50th birthday. He's like, you know what your problem is, Jim? You're not flying around a spaceship. Right? It's like, dude. Will you just bust on me no matter what I do? <laughs> Pretty much. I but mean, this will establish our our theme, which originally they had planned to do a Star Trek Phase 2 TV show. And part of the theme was going to be Kirk meeting his, Kirk aging and yeah. dealing with that. And uh, and so they kind of, uh, Nicholas Meyer kind of took that theme and put it into this movie. Um, which, honestly, I thought, I guess they had, from what I read, they had to talk Kirk into it because... Uh, Chetner really wanted to just be young and vital. And uh, the w- one account that I read said that Nicholas Meyer pulled out Spencer Tracy and said, you need to age gracefully like Spencer Tracy. And that was the, uh, the thing that kind of turned Shatner around on it. Well, I mean, so like the first two years of the old series, everybody hated Shatner. The entire <laughs> cast did right. Because he was just an insufferable, you know, young oh, yeah. guy who was just an ass, but you know, he looked good and he quote unquote acted well. So everybody hated him, but they kept him around. Reportedly, people who were his best friends for years, DeForest Kelly, Leonard McCoy, like Leonard McCoy. <laughs> Leonard Nimoy. <sighs> Leonard Nimoy. Um the these guys were his best friends for you know his entire life, but they hated his guts when they first started on the show. And it wasn't until he kind of got that come to Jesus that it was like, oh, okay, I don't have to be a jerk to do the job. I and will give Chetner one thing. I, I, I've i always considered him something of a ego problem, but I will give him one thing. In his book, uh, Star Trek Memories, he actually writes in there that when he was interviewing the different people, he interviewed uh, Michelle Nichols, and he's, when they got done, he was excusing himself and she told him no you need to sit back down because you haven't heard everything i have to say to you oh wow she basically told him you caused a lot of problem for a lot of us you had lines taken out for us you you know that was not cool dude you there's some hard feelings and uh you need to take care of that wow which i found ironic that um george takai didn't even want to be in this movie and it was shatner who talked him into it well, I think that was before they absolutely despised each other. True. Like they, at this point, they just didn't really like each other. But the the hatred comes later, I think. <laughs> um, so we're gonna move on to the Reliant. Reliant. The Reliant is a cool looking weird ship. Uh, it's a it's a saucer with a roll bar and two nacelles strapped on underneath. Now, what I read about this was that the original design, and there's a couple of different accounts of this, but the original design was that the nacelles were actually going to be above the ship just as they are on the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. Um, And when the drawings, the blue parent drawings were presented to to Harv Bennett, they were presented upside down and he signed them that way um, Mm -hmm. so that the nacelles were on the bottom side. Now, 
Some people say that was a mistake. Other people said, no, Harv Bennett did that on purpose because he thought the nacelles being below the saucer made it more distinguishable from the Enterprise, and he was very worried about the two ships being too similar um, well, and you, people having a hard time telling what was going on. It's funny that you say that because I, I did read an account that uh, apparently in early drafts of the script, they actually wanted the uh, uh, the Reliant to be another constitution class. And they yes. it was the same thing. They were pretty sure that when people watched the movie, they were going to be like, which one's which? I don't get it. <laughs> Because, I mean, people are too dumb to, you know, understand movies. <laughs> so that takes us to SETI Alpha 5. SETI Alpha yeah. 5. Now, it's it's nice, first of all, see that that checkoff is, uh, is actually getting a promotion. Oh, mm-hmm. going back to Sulu really quick. Oh, yeah. Um, one of the drafts of the script actually had Sulu being the captain of the, um, of the Reliant. Excelsior. Was it, was it the Reliant or the Excelsior? So there was two different things. They did, there was supposed to be a scene there um, that was actually shot where they're telling him he's that he's taking over the Excelsior because his line, uh, I'm delighted, any chance to be aboard the Enterprise is actually lifted from a larger dialogue in which he's explaining, I'm getting ready to go take my own ship out. But hey, I get one more chance to be on the Enterprise. This is going to be fun. You know, uh, which explains, I mean, would explain why is Sulu still there? Yeah. Um, But then also another um, draft of the script uh, included that Sulu was actually going to be the captain of the Reliant and Sulu and Chekhov. That would all be a part of the story from them. Nicholas Meyer reportedly changed that because he really wanted to work with Paul Terrell. He had been looking for a reason to work with Paul Terrell for a long time. Um, Paul Winfield, pardon me. Uh, he really wanted to work with Paul Winfield. And so when he found the opportunity, he rewrote the part so that he could have uh, Paul Winfield on the, in the movie. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, if there's anybody who really gets kind of screwed in all of this, uh, back and forth, uh, of making these movies, it's Sulu. Yes. Sulu gets the shaft every yes. time. <laughs> Um, by the way, uh, we, we need to do another podcast. Um, I, I want another podcast. It's just you doing your George Takei impression, um, <laughs> like an hour straight. Uh, you can read the phone book. I don't care. <laughs> You've seen Trekkies, haven't you? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah that, that's where I learned it from. They say they're going to pay my airfare. They're going to pay my expenses. And, and I'm thinking to myself, these people are foolish. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great flick. <laughs> um, okay, so on SETI Alpha 5, we, we also get to see that that uh, we've got Captain Terrell and Chekhov is the, is the, uh, the XO. And they are um, looking for a lifeless planet. Yeah. Uh, so basically, they we don't really know a lot about why they're looking for a lifeless planet at this point. We just know that that's what they're looking for. And they think they've found the particle whatever the hell that is. It's so a, could be a particle of preanimate matter stuck in the matrix. Is that actually what they said? I didn't think they actually said anything. Yeah. They, they're looking at it and uh, they found uh, uh, one reading on a dino scanner and uh, cause, cause Chekhov says 
does it have to be completely lifeless? Which for me is one mm-hmm. of those things of, I'm really glad to see that half assery is still around in the 23rd century. You know, can right? we cheat it a little bit? Um, well, and if there's anybody who's going to be guilty of that half assery, it's Chekhov. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, they're afraid it, or they're hoping it's going to be a particle of preanimate matter stuck in the matrix. Hmm. So to figure that out, let's beam down. <laughs> right? We we scanned this thing. We think we found something. Well, let's beam down and see what's going on. So they beam down. The captain and first officer <laughs> beam down to the planet. And uh, they find a little, or a couple of uh, storage trailers just sitting out there in the middle of nowhere in a, a horrendous radio storm of some sort. Uh, and <laughs> they go inside and they wander around and start rifling through everything because it looks like somebody lives there. Star Trek fans take note. The captain is wearing a red pressure <laughs> suit, reddish orange pressure suit versus Chekhov's white. That will come into play later. Right. Um, also, Star Trek fans, if you're really hardcore, you saw it right away. Chekhov found a belt that said the USS Botany Bay on it. <laughs> now he grabs was- it. And he looks at the camera and he says, Botany Bay? <laughs> Why didn't I remember that? <laughs> Holy crap, SETI Alpha. Oh, man, my face is red. Right? How now, one I thing also know? in this scene, they he's he looks because he's kind of shocked to see all the, the books there, the English language books there. Right. Um, one of the books there is Moby Dick, which this movie is going to draw heavily mm. from as we keep on going. Um, I was actually a little surprised there wasn't uh, any more uh, poignant books there other than just Moby Dick. I kind of figured they were going to like just grab all the books that you're going to draw from. Uh, let's and see. Surprisingly, there was no Shakespeare. King Lear was in there. King Lear was. In oh, there. was it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I didn't see it, but somebody pointed out and there was a, I saw a picture of the, it's like, okay. Yeah. King Lear. All I'm right. trying to remember. There was I didn't one see other. that. Uh, Paradise Lost. That was the last one, which is fitting because the last yep. line from Space Seed is uh, from Paradise Lost. So that, yep. Have you ever met Red Milton, Captain? That's pretty good, actually. I didn't, I didn't realize that uh, they had Paradise Lost on there. So they, uh, they, he realizes that they're in some really bad shape now. <laughs> so he's like, "We have to get out of here now!" Damn. And he pushes his captain out the door and right into the arms of mysterious black cloaked figures. <laughs> so then they go back inside. And when they get back inside, we see that there's a whole bunch of male strippers and Ricardo Montalban. Uh, I, I just have to say, Ricardo Montalban is wearing this outfit. He's got long hair, almost a mullet, not quite. He has his shirt open to his navel. And... <laughs> His chest is massive. And I was reading on this because I'm like, you know, this movie should not have that good of prosthetics. That's because it didn't. That man was really that ripped. Holy crap. Like, and I mean, at this point, he he had to be what? Late 50s, early 60s? Yeah. And 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 I'll I'll say that. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Jeez. Well, that's uh, um, Nicholas Meyer said that was the one question he got more than any other question about the movie. Mm-hmm. he said he stopped answering about the 71st time of like, no, the dude just does lots of pushups. That's um, crazy. I, I was somebody who was like, I'm not sure. But then uh, uh, my mother was a huge fan of fantasy Island 
and there's an episode in which Mr. Roar gets married mm-hmm. and you actually see Ricardo Montalban in a, uh, a knit polo shirt and you go, oh, oh. no, that was really him. Right. Because <laughs> that his arms ripped. alone. Yeah. His <laughs> arms alone were just completely complete guns. Wow. Um, so, yeah, Chekhov clearly has forgotten where they left Khan. But it, it, <laughs> it, it, it reminds him very quickly. How do you miss? How, how do you miss this? Okay. So here's what, what drives me nuts. Okay. So first off, we're making the assumption that the way that, the, well, not the assumption. I mean, they've taught us this at this point. The way that all these planets are named is that they take a system and they name the planets one through whatever based on how far from the star they are. Makes so sense. SETI Alpha 5 and SETI Alpha 6. That should be very obvious which one is which. <laughs> so here's what bugs me. When they, okay, did they leave Khan on SETI Alpha 5 or SETI Alpha 6? SETI Alpha 5. So they left him on 5. And when Chekhov gets there, he thinks he he thinks it's six. Right. So how the, like if they left Khan on six and they came into the system and five was our, it was blown up or gone or whatever. I could see them miscounting and being like, that's number five, but you count from the inside out. So their math is wrong. (laughs) Yes. Yes. There's no way that you're going to look at this and go, yeah, no, that's, that's number five. No, you're not going to think that. Your only way you're getting away with this is that when the, when city alpha six exploded, somehow city alpha seven or eight shifted into orbit within city alpha five. Yeah. And then that, five moved out, which yeah. I guess maybe that's what happened to all the life on the planet, but, but I don't st- know. It would still seem like you're missing, you know, according to this, this chart, there should be seven planets here. I'm only seeing six, right? Second or, Hey, uh, I, I just looked up the picture and that's not the same place <laughs> or, Hey, Google maps said I was supposed to turn left and there's nothing there. <laughs> like there's gotta be something. I, I, the whole thing just kind of hinges on a, on a, on a very odd idea that first of all, nobody took note of where you dropped con off. Now, did Jim just not tell Starfleet he did this? Or did Starfleet say, no, this is a forbidden planet because we don't want uh, augment groupies springing them? Yeah, I'm sure they did hide it, right? I'm, I'm sure that was like, you know. It's the general order of one. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Talos or something like that. Which, I'm, I'm sorry. There is a certain point when you just have to be like, uh, maybe we should just kill the guy. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if we're that worried about it. <laughs> Um, we're showing what a great guy Jim is. You know, he put me, he put me in a uh, decompression chamber and I was, I was still cool to him. That's right. what a guy I am. <laughs> so, uh, uh, the rest of Khan's crew, they're real fancy too. They all have, uh, <laughs> they've all got their chest showing. They've all got great, great early eighties hair. Um, unfortunately this movie was made on the cheap, so we didn't get some big name actors to play the rest of this crew. No, no, no. They went down the street to a gentleman's or excuse me, a ladies club <laughs> and they got themselves some, some male strippers. Uh, and that is exactly what they did. And that's, that's exactly who those folks are. Um, Which, I hey, think you know, that is so cool. Oh yeah. Non-speaking parts. Uh, so with a non-speaking part, I don't think they would have been union at that point. So right. yeah, as you said, on the it, cheap. 
I will say I, I started paying more attention to the backgrounds uh, when these guys are on screen because man, they some of them are really mugging for the camera. Some of them are <laughs> are just like standing there, like, "Is this where I'm supposed to be? Uh, 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 what am I supposed to do now? Where, where do I put my hands?" Uh, <laughs> it's real good. <laughs> yeah, you kind of right. expected there to be a brass a brass uh, uh, pole somewhere, you know, installed somewhere <laughs> on the bridge. Oh no, I have fallen down. Uh, <laughs> I better <laughs> hold on tight. <laughs> So, uh, so Khan and his men, they're, they're holding uh Chekhov and Terrell and Khan goes on a, a, a bit of a monologue talking about how it's horrible that they were trapped on this planet. It's all Kirk's fault, but and I'm really so only smart. I'm so mm-hmm. smart. If I hadn't been so smart, look what would have happened. Right. So he explains that there's only only one bit of life that's left on this planet. And that is the native weird armadillo sand digger creature thing that's he's got in a terrarium. And he talks about how, Hey, guess what? This thing killed, was it 20 of his people? Yeah. 20 of his people, including his wife. But here's the thing that I find real bothersome about this. He says, one of the symptoms of this or one of the the early symptoms of of being affected by these things is uh, your power of suggestion is affected. How do they know that? <laughs> like, I would think after like three or four people got infected with these earworm things that you'd be like, hmm, that guy, he just, I, I said, go get a drink of water. And he went and got a drink of water. That's kind of weird. When I told him to go jump the lake, he actually did it. Right. So by the time, you know, person 15 rolled around, I'm thinking they're like, do my math homework. <laughs> Go pick up those bushels of rocks. Those people didn't die from the worms. They died from being overworked. Yeah. It's, right? Bob, it's your turn to do the dishes again. Uh, I'm just like, saying. Look, that. admittedly, I forgot to tell them to go eat. <laughs> So he, he grabs some of these little baby worm things and drops them into their helmets and then they crawl into their ears. Now, low budget movie, the ears that these things crawled into were so clearly molded plaster or, (laughs) or crappy plastic. Like they were just terrible, but I'm telling you five-year-old me. (laughs) Oh Yes is still inside my head and oh my God, I cannot watch that scene without just, Oh, the creepy crawlies real. The heartbeat sound effect, I think really, really added something to it. Now here's one thing. And admittedly the, the puppets are great. Oh, they're little tiny, little tiny inchworm style puppets covered in goo and blah. They're real good. Yeah, no, they, they, this is for the time, especially this was a really amazing creature scene. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing I'm, I really do regret though, is because I thought they were kind of going to set up a tradition of Chekhov just screaming every movie. And, and this is really the last one they do it in. I, I, I really thought we were setting up a, you know, and pretty much something, you know, we're, we're waiting each movie for Chekhov to scream. But yeah. No. That, I mean, that would make all the movies better. <laughs> anyway, and, right. and have it so he does. You know, in 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 movie five, he doesn't even have to have a reason. He'll just do it. Hey, so <laughs> if anybody's actually listening to this podcast, uh, you guys want to make a super cut that has 
Chekhov screaming in every one of the movies. I'm, <laughs> I'm there for it. Um, so, all right. So we see the earwigs go in. These guys are in horrible pain. They all scream. Let's go back to the Enterprise. So Captain Kirk's got to do his inspection because now he's an admiral. Excuse me, Admiral Kirk. He's got to do his inspection. Um, so what does that mean we have to do? That means we have to do an obligatory flyby. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, this will be a little bit faster than it was in the first movie. It's got to be. I mean, this movie does not last four and a half hours longer than it should, like the other one did. So, yeah, it's a very quick flyby, but it's it's a, ooh, ah, there's the Enterprise. Uh, interestingly enough, uh the when they do see the research station uh so they the enterprise is heading out towards the genesis research station and when they do finally see it the actual model of that station is the model from the last movie when they got onto the space station that was all office buildings yes they took the model and flipped it upside down and repainted it and said there we go it's a new mo- or it's a new space station <laughs> And one thing now, this is, uh, we're, we're going to meet, uh, now we're going to meet, um, um, David and Carol Marcus. Mm-hmm. And when Carol Marcus is speaking to Chekhov about the whole situation about, you know, maybe you can go down there and see this or that they do a quick cut to David Marcus and David Marcus kind of looks away from his mother and looks uncomfortable. And here's the thing. I never gave it a second thought. I thought that was a nice cutaway shot. I never gave it a second thought, but now I watch that. And here's the thing. He's listening to his mother fight for the integrity of their project mm-hmm. to Starfleet, all the while knowing he has completely screwed them all with proto matter in the thing. Oh yeah. So yeah, no, he's, he is the worst person in the whole movie. <laughs> and you know what? He's going to get his comeuppance. It's going to end up in square pegs. <laughs> so, uh, uh, interesting side note. Uh, I used to work for a CEO named David Marcus. So every time I watch this movie, it weirds me out a little bit. <laughs> oh, conspiracy hole. Merritt Buttrick was in Star Trek two. Merritt Buttrick was in square pegs. Sarah Jessica Parker was in square pegs. Sarah Jessica Parker was in sex in the city. Kim Cattrall was in Sex and the City. Kim Cattrall was in Star Trek VI, both Star Trek II and Star Trek VI, directed by Nicholas Meyer. There is absolutely nothing that can th- to come from this. There's absolutely no point whatsoever. It's just, if you're going to have a conspiracy theory, you need to Absolutely connect. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes conspiracies just aren't absolutely nothing at all. You, you right. got dots, you connect them, but nothing happens. Although you would have won the uh, uh, the movie game with that one, <laughs> so uh, um, we we see them trying to justify their their existence in the Genesis Project. That's cool, whatever. Uh, then they get another phone call. This one doesn't make them happy because we've already established they're worried about losing their project funding. And who's gonna call them? Chekhov. And he calls and says, hello, I am Chekhov from the Reliant. I have new orders. I am a totally normal human with no earbugs. 
but I have orders to shut you down and take all your stuff. And because we're in the future, I'm going to talk to you in a round monitor. Now, I, yeah, what is with that? Here's my theory. Here's my theory. People got so sick of their spouses and kids walking around in the background during Zoom calls that they just said, let's just make a monitor that just fits your head. And we don't see any mm-hmm. background. We just see your head. We don't that's need to why see we can't stuff. see that Khan is behind him. That makes so much sense. Uh, interestingly enough, though, when they do the back and forth, like they they show Chekhov talking to her on the screen, and then they go back to the the Reliant. We see Chekhov with uh, uh, Khan standing over him. I'd never noticed before that Khan was wearing a Starfleet insignia on his his uh, gold oh, chain. Oh yeah, it's a belt buckle. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's somebody's it, belt buckle. It looks like he like ripped the hood ornament off of one of the shuttles. <laughs> Decided to start wearing it around. <laughs> yeah, the costume designer said because these would have been people who were scrounging so much, mm-hmm. that even when they got aboard the Reliant, their first instinct wouldn't be to go find real clothes. They would just grab anything they saw laying around that they could put on because mm-hmm. that's what they had been doing for, for the past 15 years, 14 and a half years. That's super weird. Um, so we, we flash over to the enterprise and, uh, well, first off, Chekhov is like, I'm going to I'm going to take all your stuff. You have to give me all your research. Bye. Thanks for calling. And he hangs up (laughs) (laughs) pleasant as punch. And of course the, the crew that's on, that's in the research station is like, are you friggin' kidding me? (laughs) So, um, then we switch over to the enterprise and, uh, Kirk and Savick get in the turbo lift. Now, interestingly enough, the turbo lift, it, this establishes a shot that is famous on the next generation. And that is the two people in a turbo lift looking out the turbo lift and down the hall. This is the first time that shot's ever done. Gotcha. And it's, okay. it's iconic, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it is absolutely the Enterprise D hallway at this point. Well, I mean, it will be. And right now it's the it's the Enterprise uh, A, but it will become the D. Um, and yeah, like everything is just exactly the same. I thought that was really cool. The um, amazing cinematic technique they used to make it look like the elevator had moved was that <laughs> when they opened the doors and Bones is out there, when the doors were closed, they moved a wall into place to make the corridor look smaller and look shorter. <laughs> yep. No, it's a, it's a, a, I mean, the effect works. Oh yeah, um, definitely. When they, when they open the doors though, the look on Bones' face, like, Oh, what's going on in there? Like, <laughs> Come on, man. Two people ride the turbo lift all the time. Yeah, but it's Jim. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Were you there with a girl? That's not okay. Captain, keep it in your pants. Right. <laughs> um so let's see we, that was a, a quick little talk where she's like you know uh he, he's like so you you really want to ask me about the kobayashi maru don't you <laughs> well i wasn't gonna but since you said it oh my gosh actually it's um, one of my it's one of my favorite just really bad jokes when she asks yeah may i ask how you handle it and his response is you may ask yeah <laughs> and the joke just lands flat right <laughs> everybody knows you can't give a a sarcastic response to a vulcan it's not gonna go well and he tells her that was a little joke and then the door opens and she leaves well at the end of this elevator scene though i think there's one particular interesting thing 
they get the call and Uhura tells them it's regular one. It's Dr. Marcus. And immediately Jim goes dark. Now this is his birthday. So mm-hmm. you don't think maybe his girl, ex-girlfriend is just calling him up to say happy birthday. No, he goes dark fast, which means that he probably did not handle this breakup very well. I'm just going to, I'm just going to throw that out there. You know, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't know because there's really differing signals given by this woman. Um, you know, the, the way he reacts says that if she's calling me, that must be bad. But when they actually meet, she's also kind of lovey dovey against him too. And it's like, what is the deal here? I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. I, I think, I think she's almost pitying him when they actually do meet, but we'll, we'll get there. But, but, uh, right. but yeah, I thought that was just interesting. It's like, man, it's like, dude, you left, you, you, you know, you left your kid. How much moral high ground do you have here? You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so let's see. So then he uh, goes and goes to the communications uh, uh, thing, which to me, the scene between Carol and Jim on the communication, it's almost like listening to somebody on a cell phone in a coffee house in 1994. What? Right? What? 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 What do you mean? <laughs> You're breaking up, man. <laughs> This is an awesome scene because we get to see Spock's quarters, which include an an infinity mirror lamp behind him. Oh which, yeah, <laughs> you know those disco era. There's a, for me the big idic shower curtain that he has going on. I'd buy one of those in a second. Love the that thing. idic shower curtain. Yeah, if you when he goes in as Kirk is facing him, just on the left, there's a mm-hmm. big metallic um, tapestry. That has a huge itic symbol on it. I don't even know what that is. I feel dumb. Um, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. It's kind of the Vulcan peace symbol. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I um, do know that one. And so they go in and then they have the, they have, the, they have, they have the talk because Jim goes in there and says, you know, Hey, you just have to get me here and you can almost see it on Spock's face. Yeah. Okay. Well you can take the ship. Well, no, 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 <laughs> I don't need the ship. Jim, just take the ship already, okay? Well, you know, I don't do... No, Jim, just take the ship already. Then Jim goes to the bridge and says, I'm taking the ship, and you see the look on everybody's face. Yeah, no ship. Yeah, right. Okay. No, really? We're all shocked. Jim's like, no, 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 I swear, I am stealing it. (laughs) Yeah, okay, whatever. It is a great scene in the, in Spock's quarters though, because again, as you mentioned, very, very Star Trek, Jim goes to Spock for counsel. They talk, Jim makes a little joke. Spock gets a little joke back to him. Um, in this case, it's the, you know, uh, um, where, where Spock tells him, you know, you never should have taken the promotion, dude. Yeah. And Jim tells him, yeah, well, you know, I wouldn't be so presumptuous to argue with him. <laughs> Spock was like, yeah, that that's a good move. <laughs> hello uh, name's spock nice to meet you <laughs> so yeah and then and then jim goes ahead and goes up to the bridge and says uh hey i'm taking over um and he does the little speech about you know i'm uh going to have to ask a lot of you to grow up faster because here's again okay there's something happened on regular one and they say well you're the only ship in the area you go do it 
No, the Reliant is in the area because we're going to run into it in five minutes. Right? Do you Why guys is not Starfleet have... not talking to the Reliant and saying, <laughs> hey, can you check this thing out for us? No, they're going to call the training ship <laughs> that's full of cadets. Like, here's the thing. We look at this movie and we, we watch it and we go, okay, it's full of cadets, whatever. We put that out of our minds because we're watching the Enterprise bridge crew. Yes. Okay, cool. Now, if you think about watching TNG, anytime they brought in cadets, those were college kids running simulators or like, you know, the, the shuttlecraft version of a Piper <laughs> Cub, right? Like, wait a second. These are two very different things. Everything else tells us that if they're cadets, these are kids. They're yeah. just out of high school. Like, you've got them running this mission against <laughs> Khan? But he thinks all you have to do is get me there. Because like, I, told, I told Starfleet all we have is a boatload of children. Ugh. <laughs> no, that... This one, I, I will say, this particular piece of this movie, it really bugs me because they should never be anywhere near that. Starfleet <laughs> Command should have been like, Kirk, we need you to go check this out. And he's like, sure, no problem. I'm on this training ship. I'll catch a ride. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. What did you say? <laughs> you, you said you're on the training ship? Never mind. We've Turns out we have like 600 other admirals. We can send one of them. <laughs> And the whole thing of like, well, we don't have another another ship around. So starships don't even have low jack. <laughs> right. The only way we know where you are is just by asking you. Um, so where are you at okay, right now? That comes up in Star Trek all the time. Like, yes. where have you been? <laughs> Why didn't you just check the database? It shows where I'm at like all the time. Ugh. <laughs> all right. So he heads up to the bridge. He commandeers the bridge, gives a little speech. And then what's next? Um, then we go back to the Reliant. Uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. Okay. We go back to the Reliant and this is where we get, uh, uh, Khan saying, okay, we're, we're going to go after the enterprise and Joaquin, um, speaks up now, just a point on the actor who, who's playing Joaquin. He's not credited at the beginning of the movie mm -hmm. because his agent who I hope he replaced his agent thought they would be able to negotiate at a later time for a better credit standing. And therefore Mr. Judson's name doesn't appear on the opening credits, despite the fact that he has a speaking part. That's pretty crap. Yeah. 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 I, I saw that. It's like, Oh man, that's, that's, that's gotta hurt. Hmm. He would show up later in a TV show called the Phoenix and uh, which was mm -hmm. horrible. Um, and then he'll be in an episode of Next Generation as well. In fact, was he really? he's in the same episode of Next Generation as Merritt Butrick is. They are both in the no same episode. No kidding. Yeah. The, I'm going to have to check that out now. The name of the episode is escaping my mind at the moment. That's okay. It's a first, I know it's first season. So they're approaching the Enterprise. Uh, let's see. So yes, and this is where we, Joaquin basically tells Khan, hey, listen, You've been a great boss. Look at all the cool stuff you've done. Can't we just take off now and have our own ship? I mean, we're in a ship that it's going to be hard for somebody to mess with us. Why do we have to go after Kirk? He'd ask me and I shall have him. 
I shall chase him around in drama and around perdition's flames before I give him up. That's a, the the they replace a few things, a few place names with space place names. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's Ahab basically saying, "I'm going to get the whale." Yep. Um, uh, I, I do like the use of the word perdition. I always like the use of the word perdition. <laughs> Let's see. Do, 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 do. Okay, so now we go back to the Enterprise, and Jim is muttering to himself, they were going to take Genesis away. She said they're going to take Genesis away. That's right. And Spock says, well, it kind of helped if I knew what Genesis was. So then they look up Genesis. And then Kirk turns the chair around and says, Uhura, have Dr. McCoy meet me. Uh, meet us in my quarters and turns around and says, Mr. Savick, you have the con to which you can, they cut the scene right there, right before you hear Hikaru Sulu say what the actual, right? (laughs) You're going to put the cadet in charge. I beg your pardon. We're actually on a live mission now and you're putting the Lieutenant in charge. This is the exact same stupidity that will get played out in the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie, no, you just don't put random people in charge of things. There is a system of command. That is what it says in Starfleet's manual. (laughs) It says, whoever the first person you see across the room is, is now in charge. (laughs) Picard did it. (laughs) Archer did it. (laughs) Archer put the linguist in charge of the ship. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah okay yeah well if jonathan archer did it then i give it a pass anybody else right if, if if jonathan archer did it then it's okay and if ben cisco would have done it then i would defend it to my dying breath uh <laughs> cisco put a cardassian in charge because <laughs> he liked to think outside the box yeah sure <laughs> uh, okay folks let's pause from that latest tangent We've gone on too long, so we're going to have to cut here and continue on the next episode. Thanks so much for joining us as we ramble on about the stuff we love. I'd also like to send out a huge thank you to our friends Five Year Mission for the use of their song Beam Down as our intro and outro. Make sure to head over to fiveyearmission.net where you can find many more TOS-themed songs and albums. It's really great stuff. Until next time, thanks. Stargate 832 2016